What is up? Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I am Omid Farhang, the overly reverential advertising nerd in your ear holes. And my guest today is the great Jimmy Smith, chairman and chief creative officer of Amusement Park, the branded content, marketing, and entertainment agency he founded in 2011. Over a nearly four-decade career starting in 1985 at Burrell, Jimmy has worked alongside legends like Dan Wyden, John Jay, and Jim Riswold at Wyden Kennedy, David Lubars at BBDO, and Lee Clow at Shiat Day. In the process, Jimmy has become a legend himself. During his time at Wyden, his creations for Nike included one of LeBron James's first-ever commercials, Book of Dimes, the hip-hop basketball classic, Nike Freestyle, and the transformation of Vince Carter into Dr. Funk all of which I'm gonna suggest you Google if you call yourself an ad nerd or a basketball fan. He also wrote a documentary entitled Battlegrounds for Nike, which went on to be one of the highest rated shows in the history of MTV. In addition to all the big marketing shows like Can and One Show, Jimmy's work has been recognized by the Smithsonian and won Time Magazine's Ad of the Year. As group creative director on Gatorade, he received an Emmy nomination for Gatorade Replay. As creative director on EA Sports, he developed the storyline and characters for the video game NBA Street. He's written two books, including the 1997 release Soul of the Game, which was featured at the Chicago Field Museum, the Basketball Hall of Fame, and the International Center for Photography in New York City. In 2016, his newly formed record label, Amusement Park Music, debuted its first single, Bigger Than Us, featuring Portland Trailblazers point guard Damian Lillard, AKA Dame Dalla. He has been named to Fast Company's Creative 100. He is not only an industry icon, but a powerful voice in the fight for racial equality in advertising. This is the great Jimmy Smith and I talking to ourselves. How you doing, man? Um, any day I can do a Zoom and I, I can see uh, Wilt Chamberlain and you know some of the other cats on there. Oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So for those who can't see, I'm wearing a shirt that uh, has the, I'm wearing a shirt that has the, uh, the Hall of Fame jerseys of all the Lakers that hang in the rafters. Everything you need to know about me is the ads I get served up on Facebook. It's either one of the first 12 years of Jordan's black market Lakers shirts or like NBA Jam t-shirts. That's basically, that's what, that's the Facebook algorithm that has solved what's happening in my heart and brain. (laughs) And uh, I actually bought this when, right when they signed LeBron, I was like, man, I got to buy all these Lakers shirts now because they added LeBron to the, to the uh, jerseys of legends. Um, and then they also have both Kobe jerseys here, which still to this day, no matter who gets a statue, who gets their jersey retired in what building, the two jerseys in one building will go down <laughs> as, the, as the hardest accomplishment of all time. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Did you ever get to meet Kobe? Oh, yeah. I helped him come to Nike. You did. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. Um, he was um, having a difficult time. I, I don't know the particulars of that, but having a difficult time um, with Adidas didn't, um, they weren't agreeing on the direction for his, um, for his brand and whatnot. So he came to um, ask, um, you know, talk to some of the guys over at Nike and he had reviewed like, that's when I first learned that he was a student of the game, but not just basketball, but whatever game he was um, playing at the time, he was a student of that. So he had, he knew all of my work backwards and forwards and, you know, just really got into it. Like he could probably recite the the lines from, you know, from the various commercials. He was that on top of it. So it was an easy meeting. We, we met at Nike and, uh, and I, you know, 
said a few things for him. He asked a lot of questions. Very, like I said, a student of the game. Yeah. And, um, you know, next thing I know, he's, he's a Nike guy. It was amazing watching his, his marketing mind develop in parallel. Just, you know, with him, it's, he wasn't able to uh, compartmentalize his competitiveness. If he was competitive in drinking a glass of water or being a marketer as he was as uh, being a player. Uh, I remember we were on uh, vacation taking the boys to um, my two sons at the time. I mean, they were young at the time taking them to basketball camp. And this is the year that he, he was getting ready to be out of his Adidas contract and get into the Nike one. And he called up and uh, we're on the road. And I said, yo, Kobe, what's good, man? And the boys are in the back, my wife and my mom. <laughs> that, that was dope. Uh, he was a good dude. He, he actually asked me to start an agency with him when he started um, um, Zampezi. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, he must have, he couldn't have been more than maybe 24 or 25 right. when he made that move. By that point, was he still doing that thing where he was almost like doing this weird impression of Michael Jordan? Could you feel that in the room at Nike or, or had, had he been, become a little bit more self-actualized by that point? No, I, th- I think that was more so when he was on the um, on the court. He, he would embody that, and then um, and then obviously he created the Black Mamba so he could, you know, have his own thing. But no, when you when you were with him in person, he he was um, you know he a fraud, you know he was Kobe. Yeah, it was so. Fa- it's a, it's one of my favorite things going back at this past year when he passed away and seeing when he first came in the league. And kind of while he was trying to find his own identity and, and, you know, he's not, he's still, he's only 18, 19 years old. Um, but in interviews, he was almost like doing the speech patterns of Michael yeah. Jordan, you know? Totally was. Uh, totally. So. But I mean, yeah, he was a teenager. That's right. Complete teenager. What I, I was trying to be like my heroes when I was a kid too. So, you know, man, I was just trying to get a job like bartending at Applebee's. I don't know what I'd be. I don't know what I thank God. No one was putting a microphone in front of my mouth at 19 years old. <laughs> so Jimmy, we start all these uh, conversations in the same spot. Where are you from? What'd your parents do? Yeah, there you go. Um, from Muskegon, Michigan, born and ra- born in Muskegon and then raised in Norton Shores, which is just a little town, you know, you cross and go two miles and you're, you're in a different town. <laughs> and uh, my parents, mom was a school teacher and dad was an entrepreneur. He worked at a um, factory called Westrand and always wanted to get out of there. So he would start up these various businesses. And one of them was an Arby's. He had the first Arby's and I believe it's still the only Arby's in the um, Muskegon area. Did you grow up eating a lot of Arby's? Oh man, I killed him. <laughs> I get it. And I'd stick the, you know, the cone ketchup thing squeezy and I'd stick it in the middle of the sandwich. And that was it. That that was the bomb. The only thing I missed at the time, they didn't have um they didn't have French fries. I don't know if they have them now, but they Oh didn't they have, do. Curly fries. They do? Okay. Yeah, yeah back then it, it was only the the uh, potato um balls or puffs or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And but the sandwich was pretty dope. It's always good while you're eating it. You may regret it afterwards, but while you're eating it, it's a great experience. What did uh, what did 12-year-old Jimmy Smith want to be when he grew up? Oh, I want to do what you got on that shirt there. 
I'm going to play in the NBA. So uh, my guy, first time I ever saw a game that I can remember, um, Kareem was playing. And um, so I was a Bucks fan. And um, when he went to the Lakers, uh, I, I joined him. You know, I became, that's when I became a Laker fan. So um, I want to, you know, I fit the stereotype, man. I want to hoop. And I want yeah. to hoop in pros. And I was proud of it. Give me a give me a modern day comp of a player who, not at a skill level, but just stylistically, what might a young Jimmy Smith's game might have looked like? Oh, mine was, I'd say, without the athleticism, nowhere near the athleticism. But I would have been um, like who you know some of those Kobe stoppers back in the day. Bruce would, Bowen kind of deal? Uh, Bruce, Bruce Bowen type of dude. And then I, I rebounded my butt off. So I had a little Dennis Rodman in there. Okay. So um, Rodman's probably the closest cat that I that I can th- with, mix in with Bruce because I obviously wasn't as tall as, um, as Rodman. But for, that, that was my deal. For younger listeners or listeners, unlike me, who didn't watch way too many reruns growing up, what was Bewitched and why was Bewitched so important to you? Um. My parents, uh, particularly mom, said you got to have a backup. And dad, dad was, you know, fine. He figured I'd find a backup if, if the basketball thing didn't work. He didn't have to belabor the thing. But, you know, our moms are, they got to belabor it. So she was like, um, you got to have a backup. You got to have a backup. And um, so Bewitched was this TV show where you had uh, the mom and Dora was a witch. Her daughter, Samantha, was a witch. Um, Aunt Clara was a witch. So the, that whole side of the family was witches. They were like, you know, if I remember right, two, three, four, five hundred years old. <laughs> but, they, but they didn't look at it. Anyway, Samantha broke the code and married a mortal. She married Dan, Darren Stevens, who was an ad, advertising executive. And so when my mom kept pestering me, I was like, I remembered, you know, the show. And I'm like, I'm going to go into advertising. And uh, the only reason I said it was two reasons, um, to get her off my back. And also, and she was doing the right thing. I mean, thank God she did it. But um, um, Darren didn't look like he worked too hard. You know, after Endora would have, she'd be mad at him. It was, she called him Darwood. And after she changed him back from being a horse or something like that, back to his human self, he would have have to rush off to a client meeting. The client might even be at the house and he just throw out something off the top of his head and the client would go, that's brilliant. We love it. It's great. <laughs> I said, well, he's got a beautiful wife. He's got a big house. Doesn't look like he works too hard. So I just tell mom and dad advertise. <laughs> it sounds like a plan. So you show up to Michigan State right after Magic Johnson leaves, they win the national title. Are you there to play basketball or by then has the yeah, dream I'm been dashed? I was trying out New Jet Heat coach and all the assistant coaches and the whole nine. I'd go there and stay during the summer because that's when you could kind of show what you could do with particularly um, in that time period because Magic was in his prime, like in his prime. And so he'd bring um, Isaiah Thomas, Daryl Dawkins, Dominique Wilkins, Mark McGuire. I mean, there's some bad dudes and you're out there on the court um with them trying to you know trying to impress the coaching staff and whatnot but um you know you you didn't realize because you're so used to seeing them you didn't realize this that's magic johnson that's isaiah thomas that's dominique chocolate thunder blah 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 
But the first time it was crazy that I actually was on the court with him. Then I realized it. But after that, you got used to it. But um, he graduated time, and then he would come back to, to Michigan yeah, State yeah, and invite these guys to, to hoop. Yeah, he was an NBA champion by then. Right. Um, and multiple, probably had won a couple of them. And so when he when he would come back the first time I was on the court with him, he threw me a pass and I and you know didn't think anything of it until he threw the pass and you and you're going, damn, I just got the rock from Magic Johnson and he was like, go! And there was an open lane and I waited too late on the open lane, drove to the hole and then this cat named Richard Mudd, about six ten, six nine, six ten, just knocked it into the. Um, you know, to the stance. <laughs> and then I, when Magic never threw the ball back to me again. <laughs> yeah. And I'm guessing this is overlapping with, you know, you starting to, f- the very beginnings of you starting to find your voice as an artist. You know, as as teenagers, we hope to encounter, you know, different different artists that change our brains, whether they're musicians or actors. You know, for me, it was like, it was Wu-Tang just like the weaving together of impoverished Staten Island and Brooklyn upbringings with Kung Fu, with superhero aliases into this like cohesive narrative. Once I, once I became obsessed with that in the mid nineties, I felt like my brain was changed forever. Um, and it actually later sort of would inform the way that I would think about briefs. Who was that artist for you in the late seventies and early eighties? Oh, it was the Jackson five and um, P-Funk. P-Funk. P Funk and the and the J anything by the Jacksons and P Funk that was that whole thing. Um, with the Jacksons, it was it started extremely early because um, we moved from all black neighborhood to all white neighborhood when I was about four four or five somewhere around there, and um, it was rough. I'm sure some folks have heard that story being called the N word, not just by kids but by adults, clan threatening the builders of our home and so on and so forth. But um, so but I had an afro. And that was on top of already, you know, not being white. I, I got this afro, and that was weird. And the J five came along, and it became kind of cool to have an afro. And um, so that 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 was dope. So that formed a lot of of my childhood, and going all the way, obviously, to when he became MJ, the the, the first OG MJ. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, and then the same thing with um, P-Funk. I remember being at my cousin's home and um, she played Parliament Funkadelic for the first time. It was the Mothership Connection album. And your mind just went like that. So how I've approached things between those two and then the you know basketball culture, the freestyle nature of it is how pretty much I approach advertising to this yeah. day. It's actually the way you the way you describe P Funk and, and what I know of P Funk is there actually are some parallels with the way that I described Wu Tang. It's like you're just seeing the weaving together of music and characters and creating a literal world that you've never seen before. Um, and that's where Rizzo got that from. You just um, gave it a hip hop slant, but that totally right. came from Parliament Funkadelic. No, no doubt about it. The other one that I, uh, artist that I would put in there is um, definitely Walt Disney, hmm. and. Um, that that was the first because they were before he he was doing his thing you know you get up and um, on I think I believe it was Sunday but um, you know watch their shows or you had the viewfinder back in the day we didn't have video so that that whole thing when you wish upon a star um, I kind of took that stuff 
Um, I understand what Kobe's talking about or Michael Jackson or whatever, where you got that kid childlike thing and you never lose that and you just bring that into what you do. And um, I always kind of took that to heart without even knowing I was doing it. You graduate from Michigan State around 1984. You get to Burrell in 1985. What did Burrell represent to the industry when you showed up in 1985? What were you walking into? Um, well, before then, I did not graduate from Michigan State. I left. I had probably one or two courses um, left, but uh, me and my wife ended up, I got a gig at Burrell, so I, I was out. Um, I, growing up, even though I was in an all-white neighborhood, obviously I had my cousins and all that kind of stuff, so I was being introduced to, um, you know, on, on top of being black and living in a, in a black home, you know, black culture, James Brown, Al Green, J5, whatever, Marvin Gaye, so on and so forth, P-Funk. And that's what Burrell represented to me because the creativity that was coming out of whether it was Motown or Casablanca records or Stax records and so on and so forth. And, and then all you, the, the big heroes in, in sports um, were black. There was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there was Muhammad Ali, so on and so forth, right? Um, and I should have mentioned Muhammad Ali that he, he met a tremendous amount growing up. But um, going to Burrell, that's, I, was, I was thinking that's how you know, we could express ourselves in the same manner. And one of their, um, the most famous ad that they did was the one they did for Coca-Cola Street Songs where these cats were singing on a, a street stoop in front of a brownstone. And so that was the, that's what they represented to me. Is Burrell considered like the first ostensible multicultural agency? Um, no, no, that would be Muse Cordero Chin. Burrell definitely at the time um, was, you know, the pre, in my mind, the preeminent um, black consumer targeted a- agency. Right. And, um, but Muse Cordero Chin was the first multicultural agency. And that was started by Joe Muse, Muse is black. Uh, Cordero Mexican and um, and um, Chen Chinese. So you go through those halls, and somebody might be speaking Mandarin. You, know, you pass another office, somebody speaking Spanish, and um, it was just all over the place. And I would it would be nothing for me to be doing an ad targeting the Asian consumer market, and the ad had to be in Mandarin. Huh. So that that was multicultural. Yeah. How might someone at Burrell describe young Jimmy Smith in his first month on the job? Um, I remember uh, one of the ladies, I forget which one it was. I think it was Anna. Or anyway, I was, um, they would have said a kid, just a kid who was like six foot four and um, not really much on rules and regulations and all of that kind of stuff, but highly creative. I know um, Tom was disappointed when I, Tom Burrell was disappointed when I left. And um, I learned a lot. I learned all my ABCs from, you know, like Alma Hopkins and um, Anna Anna and uh, Lewis. So a lot of cats over there taught me my ABCs, but I I was probably a big kid. Even when I went to left there and went to FCB, Al Hawkins always just, still to this day, just called me the big kid. <laughs> what was happening in your career or what was happening in the culture that 
first attracted you to Wyden Kennedy and ultimately brought you to Wyden Kennedy? It was uh, the when I was at Burrell and, you know, we presented something to McDonald's and um, it was the McDLT. And the McDLT kept the cool side cool, meaning your lettuce and tomato, and the hot side hot, meaning the meat side. And it was, at the time, it was the first sandwich packaged the way that it was of its kind. A lot of styrofoam. And on styrofoam. Nothing good for the environment. Fortunately, they've stopped that. <laughs> but I present this idea with the first man. I figured if this is the first burger of its kind. We ought to have, you know, the spokesperson ought to be the first man. And... I just assumed everybody knew that the first man was black. So I didn't, I didn't think much about it and um, presented it. And um, they it came back, word came back that they were wondering what was black about it. They loved it. McDonald's loved it, but didn't understand what was black about it. And so I was telling, um, you know, the account folks and Tom and, you know, Alma, I said, well, just a black man created it. That's what's black about it. And uh, I was like, no, you can't tell him. <laughs> you can't tell him. I said, well, we went to the root of what's black. This is the first man. So it was always button heads of what was black. And that was an issue for me, given the, my background of uh, black folks and white folks. So then when I went to um, FCB, Falcone Belden, it was the reverse. And the reverse was what's, um, that's too black. When again, I wasn't I wasn't trying to do black. I wasn't trying to do white. I was just trying to do what's a dope idea, right. and, and that's too black. And that 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 idea um, it can't it hit was Run DMC, and I was like, they're doing stuff with Aerosmith. <laughs> what are you talking about? I think it was for Sunkiss Orange Soda, mm -hmm. and it's, it's Aerosmith. There's no I mean it's Aerosmith and Run DMC. I guarantee you, your kids are listening to Run DMC as well. I I, I don't get it. So I knew at that point that I had to get to some place and, and get to a brand where I could just um, be who I am, whatever that happens to be, whatever is right. And who I am is whatever is right for the brand. And then once you get your dream like that, it, it's, it's scary because you're like, now nah, I got to, you know, I got to be good. So. Yeah, you're not walking into some startup by 1994. You know, Mars Blackman campaign has happened. Charles Barkley, I am not a role model campaign has happened. Obviously a lot of great work ahead, but this is an established magic. I mean, did you feel the place buzzing when you arrived? Oh yeah, it, it was, um, it was on fire and it was like something I had never experienced before, even at um, Burrell and Footcone and the energy was off the charts. And um, in my first assignment, uh, my career directors were Dan Wyden and Susan Hoffman. <laughs> I'm like, shit, like, really? The first assignment? It can't be, I can't work my way up. It was like out of the gate. Those were the first two. And I had to present by the end of the week. I started on Monday and had to present to them like by Thursday or Friday. That's a thing. You know, I've interviewed Jeff Kling and some other folks. I love to talk to folks who, it's not hard to talk to CCOs today and great accomplished creatives who went through Wyden Kennedy, but they all share this story that they started and like they had an assignment faxed to them before they even signed their contract. It just must be a way to just like, you know, uh, you know, Hey, get used to this, get used to this pace. Get it. Let's get it crunked. <laughs> yeah. You have the distinction of doing the first ever Nike commercial for then 19 year old LeBron James uh, called book of bass, excuse me, book of dimes. Uh, which also featured the late Bernie Mac as a church pastor 
And I'm just thinking about this set. You got 19-year-old LeBron. You've got Dr. J on set, Jerry West on set. You got Bernie Mac on set. Man, you must have a good story from the set of Book of Dimes. Yeah, you tell me. That actually wasn't the first one. The first one was um, First Touch. And um, I forgot who the art director was on it, but Mike Byrne was the, the writer on that. So um, it was the first touch. It was like he got just like it was kind of like reminding me of the magic um, joint or we call him Junebug back then. But um, when he threw me the pass, it's like. And so that's what first touch was. He got right. he got the pass out on the wing and he just froze in the spot. And it's like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? And then, you know, he went in and, and unlike me, he went and dunked it. So <laughs> that was his first joint. Like I said, when he was about 18, I was a career director on that and, and Byrne was the, um, was writing it up. So he was, a, he, Byrne was a career director too, but um, yeah. But you're in, you're in a building with Bernie Mac, Dr. J, Julia Serving and 19 yeah. year old LeBron, I guess now on his second commercial shoot. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of powerful forces in one room. Do you have a, do you have a specific memory of Bernie Mac saying something that's seared in your head or I don't know anything, man. It was, um, what was dope about that before that we had done what we call a city attack, New York city attack, LA city attack. So I had met basketball legends from the seventies. Like for instance, PB Kirkland, um, they call him stick man. Cause he make you stick to the ground with his moves. Joe, the destroyer Hammond, um, Jumping Jackie Jackson, who actually um, dunked on Wilt Chamberlain. So you had all these legendary guys. So that church was, my point is that church was filled with all hoopers. Guys you knew, guys you didn't. So you had, and, and it was amazing because, let's see, on stage, the, the elders of the church, let's see, Moses Malone, Julia Serving, um, Jerry West, um, Iceman. George Garvin, yep. And um, the thing about it was Julius Irving had played with some of those guys. Like Pee Wee Kirkland, you know, right. he was actually at Rucker Park with some of the Fly Williams was out there. He was actually on the court with some of those guys back in the day because back then you were allowed to, they didn't have rules that you couldn't train in certain situations and whatever and whatnot. And they, they weren't as guarded about their multi-million dollar athletes. So it was cool seeing those groups of people. And then and then the choir was all WNBA players for the most part. So it, it was male, female, legends, pro, pro legends, street ball legends. And I just remember that that uh, that thinking, you know, this is this is truly crazy. And then my boy, Boosie Collins, was kind of like an uncle. So here I am with um, one of my childhood um, heroes, Bootsy, who I had never met, but I was dancing in, you know, dancing at the club or house party, um, you know, to Bootsy's music. And here Bootsy is leading the choir, you know, and he, he and I co-wrote that song. And it was just, it was dope, dude. Alan Hughes, the Hughes Brothers, from the Hughes Brothers yeah, directly. And, and Bernie was just, it, you know, he wasn't, he could take your words and he, he, he wasn't like one of those artists, like actors who would just, ah, your script is, is crap and not listen to it. He took it and you go and do things with it that you hoped he would do, but it doesn't always work out like that, right? And, 
but man, he he was magical. That 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 whole that whole shoot was just magical. And I, LeBron, I believe. Now, yeah, I don't believe. I know that's one of his favorite all time. Um, commercials. I mean, he'll post it periodically. He'll post that thing. Yeah, I saw him post it just a couple months ago, and he's he's so young in it. And to me, the most astonishing thing about LeBron is like we live in such a overhyped world, and no one has incurred more hype than LeBron James. And I don't think there's ever been a person in history who has met and exceeded such kind of like irrational hype as him. Did you feel in that room with you know? I didn't even realize all of the you know, the Rucker Park legends that I didn't even realize were in there, not to mention, you know, four of the all-time Hall of Famers. Did you ever see a guy who looked a little overwhelmed, a little scared by the cameras? I mean, so early in his career. No, no, Matt, Matt, not not at all. I'm sure, but there were things that you would do that you would present to him that he, he would gravitate towards and which you understood that fit his um, personality or, he saw, or how he saw the world. So like that ad came out of an interview we were doing with him and I was bugging the crap out of him to, um, to how, how did you get so great? Who, who helped, who helped you become, and you're still talking to a teenager, right? And he goes, I don't, you know, nobody really. It was, I mean, you know, who was a mentor who, who kind of taught you the game and um, nobody, no, nobody. I mean, you know, no. And I, but I, I said, dude, I got, you know, in my head, I'm going, I got to create an ad. You got to give me something <laughs> a phone so, so it can be authentic to you. And finally, he just blurted out, God just blessed me, man. He blessed me. And it was like, thank you. So <laughs> at that time, <laughs> at that time, you knew that um, he was a believer and, and had, had conversations with his mom. We had to get the pastor of my church, church to co-sign it to make sure it wasn't blasphemous. And I remember his mom said, you know, he, he believes in Jesus and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, cool. So you knew that was authentic to him. And that's why and it must have been why he was comfortable in that. The other thing was, though, that he did was um, on Chamber of Fear. So you're going, I don't know if he really fears anything because, you know, doesn't appear that he does. And so this is like his third one. And um, but he chose to do that. And so it was authentic. So even though he, he, you know, like this, he's not going to let you know that, yeah, he's, he's human. He's like, this is crazy. And, but uh, how you approach it is what separates yourself. So you can approach fear in that you cower and you go the opposite direction, or you can confront it. And that's, that's what I believe, it, you know, has driven him to the greatness that he is. If I'm going, I, I, instead of being afraid of all of the hype, he said, I am afraid of it in the early going. I'm afraid of it, but the way to overcome it is to work my ass off. So there's no stone unturned on how I work on my game. And if I do that, everything else will take care of itself. And, and that's what Chamber of Fear was about. Well, one of the genius things I think Wyden did with him from a young age was you know, take it gradually in terms of like with Book of Dimes, you're surrounding him with so much talent, energy, comedy. And all you're really asking him to do is you're not asking him to act. He's 19 years old. You're asking him to come in the room, you know, fire off some passes, do stuff that, you know, his body is comfortable doing. Like he doesn't even deliver a line in it. 
Chamber of Fear, a little bit of the same. He's not doing a ton of acting. And then he really, you know, he starts to get more and more comfortable. All of a sudden he does, I, I believe the project that you were at least involved in, I don't know if you saw it through to completion before you left, but then he does the LeBrons where he, you know, plays five characters and it's, you know, his version of almost an Eddie Murphy movie. And that's when you go, okay, this dude is spreading his wings. Yeah. Now. Yeah. That, and his, I remember um, him through his agents and what he, he wants to, and his boys, Maverick and Shorty. And Randy, um, he wanted to talk more in the ads. And it, it wasn't, the early going, it wasn't about so much. I mean, some of those guys you can get a hold of and they aren't necessarily great actors, but um, <clears throat> it wasn't so much of protecting him from anything. It was just those ideas, the truths that he would say fostered that. And, um, but yeah, we, just before I left the next campaign, we had made him a street ball legend. So he's going to be like, he didn't make it. So he was going to be gray and older and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, he didn't make it to the league because he screwed up on, you know, some of the things that he should have been doing, working on his game, staying away from the girls, whatever, 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 whatever. And anything, you know, not girls period, but you know, like a hundred or whatever. So um, that, that, and so he was old LeBron. And man, whatever happened to LeBron James? And then you cut to him and he delivered his lines. It was going to be funny. Right. And then, and then I left. And then um, the client wanted to um, expand some of his um, other personalities. So we did. They ended up doing Jayanta worked on that. I forget who else worked on it, but they ended up, that's where the LeBrons came out of. One of my favorite ads of all time. Yeah, that one's a dope. Um, so. What year do you leave Wyden and what's your next stop at that point? It was um, 2004. Went to BBDO. Okay. Um, worked with um, David Lubars. That was, um, he was my boss. He was the head of, you know, global chairman, whatever, whatnot, of creative at BBDO. And I got to build their um, BBDO entertainment out of LA. So I was working out of Jesse Dillon's office, and even though I was working for the New York office which is where David was um, based. And um, I call him Dr. Damn because his ads made the folks go, damn. <laughs> so, um, and he called me pay-per-view because I would create stuff that people want to see. So yeah, so I was in New York from 2004 to 2000. I mean, I'm sorry, working for New York, but doing it out of LA. And we were doing the branded entertainment stuff for 2004 to 2008. So we actually introduced the, one of the first things we did Although it was an ad, it wasn't inter- branded entertainment, we introduced the first um, iTunes phone. So that your iTunes phone was not an iPhone, it was a Motorola rocker. And so we had um, Madonna. So it was, the whole deal was you had 100, 100, 100 songs in your phone in the Motorola rocker. And we had Madonna in it, Little Richard. Um, we actually, Bootsy was in it, Questlove. Um, Beethoven. My, Beethoven. Yeah, Beethoven. Beethoven. Beethoven was in that mug, and um, and Biggie. Yeah. <laughs> At the end, the the phone booth is jam packed with all these artists, and then Biggie's the last dude, and, and Madonna's like, Biggie, no. <laughs> and he comes in and goes, "There's another one." Yeah, there's another one. <laughs> that was funny. And then um, and then we did Instant Death, which was was Brandon Entertainment. It was this, like a five part series. Many, we created the streaming site 
And when, when that wasn't a, a big thing at all, I don't even think Netflix existed in that format at the time. And we did um, Instant Death when the Black Eyed Peas for Snickers, when the Black Eyed Peas were like the biggest band in the world. Yeah. Where we was in there and, they, and anything they touched was like platinum. And so that was fun. And there was a lot of acting and Terry Crews was in it. Um, it was a crazy shoot. You know what, I man? I, I know you did the, the Battlegrounds documentary for Nike. And, um, and then you talk about kind of this transition to a more branded entertainment focus at BBDO. And I mean, you're really a, a, one of the pioneers of branded entertainment this century. Um, do you recall a specific moment or an impetus in your career that led you to want to solve briefs with less traditional advertising and, and begin to blur that line into entertainment? Or did it just, was it just something that kind of happened organically? It's, it's a little bit of a combo. If I went back to Muse, Muse Cordero Chen, I was kind of, you know, I kind of represented all black America for, for Nike. So Scott Bedberry would show me work that widened, you know, um, storyboards and stuff. Um, I didn't ask for that gig. Don't want that gig. And who, how can you represent? But hey, they're paying me. So this is cool. <laughs> so they would show me, um, they showed me um, Hair Jordan. And I've told Griswold this, Jim Griswold created that. And um, Daryl McDonald was the art director. And um, he showed me that, that um, Scott Bedberry was at the in LA showing me to add the storyboard. And I'm saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. What does, <laughs> what does Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny got to do? Uh, I mean, what does Michael Jordan basketball got to do with Bugs Bunny? Were you like, you're ruining one of the most valuable brands in sports. I'm, I'm hating on that mug. I'm hating on it. And Thank God they didn't listen to me. Thing obviously blew up. And um, so uh, while that was going on, they did part two, the 92nd one that ran on the Super Bowl the next year. All the while this is going down, um, Warner Brothers is trying to convince Phil Knight to turn it into a feature film. And they're flying down up to, they're flying up to Oregon, going to Beaverton, meeting with Phil. And Phil's like, nah, just make shoes. And they're like, but dude, these kids are going to pay you to see a commercial. You've had to pay people to um, watch your ads. Like you get, you got to pay the media. So whatever that media costs is you're paying all that money and you don't know if the kid is sitting in front of the TV or not sitting in front of the TV. But if it's a movie, a feature film, they're going to pay you to see your commercial. You're going to have their attention for 90 minutes. So instead of a 90 second commercial, you got a 90 minute commercial. It's going to do all the things that you want an ad to do. And in other words, they're going to go buy your shoes and you make money on two revenue streams, three, because you got licensing, T-shirts, baseball hats. You got the movie ticket sales and you got the doggone um, product sales. <sighs> we just make shoes. Now, they wouldn't do that again. You know, that's why I'm sure they're involved in, um, you know, Space Jam, too, I would think. But it's remarkable. It's 25 years ago, and yet it's still ahead of its time. Still, I mean, you ask a kid what their favorite kicks are, they're going to say most likely the Space Jams. You know, they will call them out. And um, so that, when, when I, so that was it. That movie came out in 96, made $283 million at the box office, $3.5 in merchandising and whatnot. So it was close to $4 billion. And at the time, Nike's a $6 billion company. So I'm at night, I'm at Wyden Kennedy when the movie hits 
I believe I can fly is number one. The movie's number one. I'm going, damn, I just thought we were doing these little 30 second commercials. Cause what I just told you, I had no clue. I did not know that Wyden didn't have anything to do with the movie and that um, Nike didn't have anything to do with it. I had no clue. So I'm sitting up there, I'm in Jim Rizwall's office and I said, dude, how much money did you make off of that? He goes, I didn't make shit. I'm going, well, that's Riz, typical Riz, you know. And I'm going, oh, I, I probably shouldn't ask him how much money he's making. You know, so I kind of apologize. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get in your business and how much you made, but you know. And he goes, no, I didn't make shit. Come to find out, Pitka, Joe Pitka, who directed the commercials and directed the feature, felt sorry for Riz because he knew it was his idea. So he had him rewrite like one or two pages and they paid him like five or 10 grand. So at the end of the credits, I believe you see, you know, special thanks to Jim Rizwald. That's all he got out of almost $4 billion. And I'm like, wait a minute. Ooh, hold up. That, that doesn't track. And so that was, that planted a huge seed. And then um, we were doing this, um, like I said, city attack stuff, me and John Jay, call him Dr. Jay. We're doing um, City Attack, NYC, LA, City Attack, and a book publisher called up our um, photographer and said we should do a, a coffee table book on this campaign. And I'm like, it's a bunch of print ads. Who's going to buy a book of a bunch of print ads? But I learned my lesson from Space Jam, what happened there. I said, let's, let's go. Let's, you, know, you guys think it'd be cool? So I uh, um, wrote that book. Um, Dr. J designed it and whatnot, and John Hewitt, we got all of the best photos. And that, that you know, that book's in museums. And it's, um, I believe it's sold out in, in many places. But it's in museums in Europe, it's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Then EA Sports called, Will Moselle, said, hey, Jimmy, we want you to work on this video game. What, what do you think? And I said, you want me to do the ads for this video game? No, we want you to actually co-create the video game. And that been, be, be, um, led to the NBA Street series. Yeah, man. I so know well. Stuff like that just kept happening, kept happening. And, you know, by the time I got to um, BBDO and then um, TBWA Shy at working with Leon Gatorade, we did Gatorade Replay. It was like, why not have a company that specifically, instead of it happening by accident, I mean, I wasn't trying to do it, but by then, I'm like doing it intentionally, but wasn't the client still think was still thinking, you know, ads, 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 30 second, 30 second, 30 second. I'm trying to get them. Look, this is what happened with Space Jam. This is what happened with um, NBA Street. This is what happened. This is what happened. let's do it intentionally. So I figured if I opened up a place designed for that, it would be easy to sell that type of stuff. All right. You had a distinct experience of working closely with these three icons, Dan Wyden and Lee Clow and David Lubars. As you look back, is it is it hard to compare and contrast them? Do you see like, you know, patterns or similarities in the way that those three specifically approached leadership and creativity? Leadership was definitely the same. Once you earn their respect, you did you could do whatever you want. They, they weren't they weren't the type of leaders that had to have their fingers in it and, you know, move this this way or do this this way or whatever, whatever. They trusted you. And, and you know, it was it was fun. 
And um, I'd say um, Lee was hands-on in that, not, not in a, not in a, not to counter, contradict what I just said. He was like, he would tell people he was my partner. So I'm like, yeah, but you're Lee Clark. But he never treated you any other way than we're partners. And you could tell Lee, and this was with all three of them, you can tell him, I don't like that because, 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 well, okay, well, let's, we'll come up with something else. So he, didn't, he, he, never, he never reminded you that he was the boss. Never reminded me that, never acted that way. He was like no different than, you know, when I worked with Hal Curtis over on Freestyle, um, he was my partner. And it, it, was, it was awesome. Whereas Dan, Dan was, um, um, you know, even doing, you know, he was, he led in a different way where he, okay, you know what you're doing. I see you know what you're doing. Do your thing. So he was never my partner in that way. A lot of times he would see it afterwards. Right. You know, the, the thing is already done and whatever and whatnot. But that was his gift to recognize, you know, talent and let you go do your thing. Same thing with um, Lubars. And um, and he recognized, you know, all three of them, like I, when we did the Motorola joint, I was sitting in Lubars' office with um, some other creatives and I said, I don't know, what if a bunch of these artists just crammed a phone booth? And, you know, that's it. Let's do that. And he'd lock in. All three of them had the ability to lock in and go, that's the idea. Do that. So it was cool. That's that, that gift of decisiveness is so, so valuable at an agency, especially a big agency, tons of teams. And for someone to, with that kind of gravitas to say that and focus all of this energy, you know, it's like there's this fire hose of creative energy at any agency. And if you could focus it on the building that's on fire instead of spraying it all over the, all over the city, I think sometimes that's the difference between good agencies and great agencies. Um, I'll say this too. Um, I mean, the other people, you know, I'm sitting up here talking about what my experience was. Other people may have, not may, probably do have different experiences. But what I noticed is um, they didn't have egos. Mm. When I worked with them, it was, like I said, it was like David, it didn't have to be Dr. Dam's idea. Right. You know, it was like, and, and David would tell you, I wasn't, I wasn't that good of a writer. He'd tell you that in the heart. I wasn't that good of a writer. That's why I got you guys. <laughs> right. So it wasn't like his ego trying to, it's got to be my idea. He didn't have that. And then, um, you know, Dan wrote, um, just do it. So it's like, I don't need to do anything else <laughs> except for make, give you guys the environment to be, you know, who you are. And then um, Lee was a savant, you know, that he could have been coming up along, you know, back when uh, Michelangelo was doing something. Just as a quick off-ramp, I, I happen to know that you've spent most of your adult life wearing Air Jordans on your feet. That's right. The, the Air Jordans that people wear say a lot about them, just like the Facebook ads I get served says a lot about me. So I'm going to ask you, if you had to wear one pair of Jordans for the rest of your life, what would you choose? And before you answer, I'm going to add that you can have all of the colorways of that one, of that one model. Okay. Oh, that's easy. It's, it's the 11s. Okay. It's, it's totally 11s and, and patent leather. Patent leather. You yeah. can wear you can wear them to a party. You can wear them to a wedding. Or just rock them on the court. So it just didn't. They, they fit everywhere, which is what he he envisioned. Him and Tinker envisioned for those joints. So it, it, yeah, that was by far those those. I mean, not by far because I got a whole you know slew of them. 
but those are my favorite. If I if I had to be uh, like you said, if I only had could wear one pair it, in all the colorways, it would be the Elevens. Okay, which Jordan would you wear if today you were playing modern day drunk on tequila? Michael Jordan in horse later this afternoon. What Jordans do you wear to that competition? <laughs> it's still the 11s. <laughs> if you put it like that, you know, if we're playing multiple days, we'll go with the 11s. Um, I thought the, um, the um, you know, I got a thing for the nines. Obviously, the, um, I never, you know what? I never did was all that crazy about the ones. Hmm. Those always hurt my feet. And um, I, I just couldn't get down with those. But the but the two and the threes, those were dope. I don't like the performance of the ones. All I like about the ones is how they look on Mike in 1985 and then when he brought them back to the garden. And they made his feet bleed when he wore them then. He said uh, technology certainly has improved. <laughs> for me, it's the three. For me, it's the three. Um, I think the 20s get slept on. Is that I like one that kind of looks like a spaceship. It's 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 got the um, the only thing you know uh, the upper the only upper is the strap that goes around the ankle. Right. And I always thought those. I mean, from a comfort standpoint, those are real comfortable. To me, it's like a like the 11s and the 20s. To me, are like so, like some of the best Kanye West albums. Where sometimes I hear them. And the first 10 times I listened to it, I'm like, man, I think this guy fell off. I think this album's whack. And then six months or a year later, I'm like, this album's amazing. I just wasn't ready for it yet. And I think the same is true of the best Jordans. Sometimes yeah. it's like, you don't even know what you're looking at. You might think they're whack. And then a few years go by and you look back and you're like, man, those were right on time. You're right on time. You're right. It's like a good album. Yeah. So so switching gears here, man, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, our industry uh, in light of the events of the past three months as our nation faces a reckoning with race. Uh, our industry certainly faces a reckoning with race as well. So maybe we just start with this. How have the events of the past few months affected you and, and what are you seeing right now? Um, huge, huge um, change. I'll tell you, baby, I said, what's up? Um, huge, huge change. And like, I believe there's like three waves and there was the, the wave of civil war. And in order to get that change, you needed to have a a bunch of white folks willing to die for the freedom of folks that didn't look like them. And, and they made, and together made that happen. Right. And then the next big wave is um was the civil rights movement when Emmett Till was killed and you had again yet you know Jews white folks as well as um blacks brown going of, as freedom fighters to end you know Jim Crow era and all that kind of stuff get, um, get voting rights and all, uh, everything like that and then in each case things would kind of creep back down but they were huge leaps. And so I believe this is another, unfortunately, you know, it, somebody had to die. George, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so on and so forth had to die. But the COVID thing made everybody, everybody was at home, had stay-at-home orders. Folks ain't in the office. Families are at home. Kids aren't in school. And you saw it. 
I just wrote to somebody um, yesterday about um, we're working on this thing, and and um, I sent over the videos of of this stuff that went down. Not the killings, this separate separate topic. And they wanted me to have transcripts of it. And I said, I'm a, I'm a, first of all, I'm a filmmaker. And, um, you know, if we had just read about George Floyd, <laughs> terrible, tragic. My, my, I'm pissed off. You got a bunch of people pissed off, but nowhere near as many people pissed off because of that video. And we've had video before, but people weren't at the office. They didn't just hear about it. They weren't, the kids weren't in school. They didn't just hear about it. They, they, everybody was at home. And so the, the when you got folks in a small town like Iowa, where 99% of them are white, and you got protesters out there, it's like, whoa, okay. And they're white protesters. <laughs> and you got a couple, one or two black dudes out there. Uh, so it, it's a huge, massive shift. And you're seeing it from clients. Clients are calling. Actually, I've gotten briefs that say, uh, we want to do something about Black Lives Matter. And you're like, you know, that's been a thing for a few years now. Right. Now you actually, it's actually in the brief. That's, that's a whole new ball game. And um, they're actually listening. I had um, one client say they didn't know. They didn't know that that was going on and it was like man and this is a good person good real dope person and you go how could you not know i mean but so that's what has changed there's a shift where for um good folks white black brown asian whatever whatever all on the same page like no this is real it's not just the blacks and it's not just the brown folks saying this is real this is real this is real now you have uh the you know a huge, a number of Americans on mass going, now we got to do something about that. So again, that's the third wave and there'll be another huge jump. So as it, as it, as you think about it in terms of advertising, the sixties is where, you know, late sixties, early seventies is where you got um, Mingo Jones, Burrell, Vince Culler and so on and so on and so forth. Um, and probably beat me up. I, I forget the last name. It's Vince Cullen, Vince Culver, one of them. But a lot of the black ad agency, Carol Williams, started in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's where those agencies um, came out of that turmoil, right? So that, that'll that happen again. And um, hopefully, Lord's willing, they won't just be um, African-American agencies targeting African-Americans or targeting Latinos or Latinx or whatnot, but they'll be just, just happen to be, you know, like amusement park just happens to be, you know, uh, owned by a black dude or black dude. Forgive me if this question is too personal as a black man growing up in America, are there any personal experiences that you're comfortable sharing about your relationship to the police growing up? Um, mine was um, a little odd. Because I grew up in, um, like I said, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. And um, I was doing stupid teenage shit that, you know, shouldn't be doing. Just like any dumb teenager. And um, I would get pulled over. One time we were at, uh, we were at, where were we? We were at a cemetery, on the edge of a cemetery. This is stupid. This is dumb. 
nobody's saying, I'm just telling you the story. So this is dumb as it, dumb as it comes. And we had to pee. So we pulled over inside the cemetery and pee. And, and there were girls or guys, all white except for me. And the police come. And it's like, oh, man. By then, we, we had gotten back into the car. And they come. Lights are going. And not, not a one, at least that I know of, and certainly not me, we weren't afraid of the police. We were afraid they were going to take our alcohol. They were going to take our beer. And, um, and they did, but our dumb butts put it up under the car, some of it under the, you know, put it on the side of the car. That was when they would come on the driver's side. So we opened up the door on the passenger side and put it up underneath the car. And, um, and they took us, had, had us following to the police station. Again, I'm not afraid. I'm not frightened at all. It was fine. And um, they rolled out the basketball and we hooped for a couple hours. They came out and said, you guys, um, you guys sober yet? He was like, yep. And he said, all right, get out of here. That was it. Our dumb butts went back and got the beer that we had left <laughs> at the cemetery. Now, if you do that nowadays, and you shouldn't be, you know, drinking and driving, there's no doubt about it, but that's, you, that's a life ruiner. Like, you, yeah. might get, you might get shot, you might get, you know, killed, your knee on the neck thrown in prison, never get out, whatever, whatever the deal, that, that's like ruin your life. But with these white cops in Norton Shores, Roosevelt Park, Norton Shores, it was like, they were buddies. They were true buddies because they remember when they were kids. So I had a house party and, um, you know, again, by then my parents were out of town and um, that place is packed with white folks, black folks, jam packed. And the black kids were like, Jim, Jim, the police are outside. The police are outside. Panic. Because they lived in a um, black neighborhood. And I'm like, well, what do they want? They say they want to talk to you. I said, okay, oh, Lord. And they're like, it's like end of the world. I go out. I mean, it'll be fine. And sure enough, I go I had my arm on the head, window down. They're sitting in the car nice and relaxed. I got my arm on the door. And I'm like, Dudes, and they said, Jimmy, what are you doing? You can take care of everybody in there? Everybody okay? Know your parents are out of town. Y'all being safe and whatever, whatever. And they can smell alcohol on my breath and whatever, whatever. Yeah, we're all right, we're all right. Okay, y'all take care now. That was it. So that was my experience with police officers, direct experience. So, so then when we um, moved to, I'm married to Smoke, we moved to Chicago, and I'm on the L ramp. And, you know, the subway train when it's an L is elevated. So um, we're standing there. I'm getting up. We just left. I just left Burrell. She left her gig. We're sitting there waiting on the train to come. Somebody, I don't know who, yanks my arm damn near out of socket. And your normal reaction is like, what the fuck is wrong? You know, you know, I'm not knowing it's a cop, but even it, once I knew it was a cop, I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? And you dumbass, what, what are you doing? Because that's not my experience with police officers. Yeah, you, you jump the turnstile. You jump the turnstile. You jump the turnstile. What are you talking about? So the dude that was in the booth goes, no, that's not him. And he lets me go. And I said, there you go, you, you dumb fuck. You know, next time, why don't you act like you got some damn sit? Now, he could have taken his bat and knocked the shit out of me or shot me or whatever because I was much bigger than him. And that was only God that protected me. But... Once that happened, I said, okay, 
we it's like we ain't in Kansas anymore. We ain't in Roosevelt Park, Northern Shores anymore. This is how these cats roll. And so that has been my experience. My brother has had um, guns pulled up to his head. He's a Tony Award winning poet, right? And, um, you know, my wife has had um, experiences with them. My sons, my, my um, oldest has been pulled over 14 times. My youngest, you know, they couldn't believe it was his car. It's like, no, my, you know, my dad's an exec. I, I actually do have, this is my car. Just couldn't believe it. And, you know, just ridiculousness. But, um, I'm, but the cool part about all of that, when I'm telling you is, at least I got to see the other side. Yeah. And, and uh, the other part to that is my, my uncle was a police officer. My first cousin was a police officer. And, and one of my good friends, the point guard on my um, basketball team was a police officer. He, he's a white dude. So I had positive influences of what uh, um, a police officer is supposed to do, how they're supposed to conduct themselves, and so on and so forth. So I know there are good ones out there. It's just some, some, some of them have run amok, too many of them. Well, when I asked you what you're seeing right now, I really didn't know what to expect. I mean, you've grown up in this country as a black man, and you've been a black marketing executive since, you know, for 35 years. And so I was just really curious if this, you know, this is not the first time, obviously, that we've seen, you know, police officers unlawfully um, kill black people. Um, And this is not the first time we've seen calls for change and reform. But to hear you say, after everything that you've seen, that this feels different to you feels incredibly hopeful to me. I, I absolutely think this is this is going to take a huge leap in a positive direction. Now, how far we leap would be the question. I mean, it, I mean, think about it. Slavery never should have happened, obviously, but that was a huge leap after that many years of being enslaved for them to go. Okay, you know. And it kind of wasn't, it was, you know, you don't have to work for Massa anymore. Yeah. And that's a huge leap. And it's to, you know, you wouldn't expect it, even though it should, even though it should. And it started to with the reconstruction where they were headed in that direction. But to, for it to go in 1865 and then like a year, we are where we are today. So 1866, 867, that we would have been where we are today, that would have, you know, that wouldn't have been realistic, right? Even though it should have happened that way. Then the in civil rights, the leap that was made during that time period was huge. But this might be one where we were hopeful we're hopeful that we'll get all that is right. But if we can get to ninety-five percent, that'd be pretty dope. On that uh, hopeful and poignant note, let's transition to 2011. You decide to break out on your own, start your own company. Amusement Park starts in 2011. What was the motivating force behind that decision to start your own company? Um, it, it was the it was brand entertainment. I, I wanted we did Gatorade replay. You know, we g'd up Gatorade, and. Um, we were had we created a, a missionG.com, which was a streaming sports and entertainment platform. And we just couldn't get um, get all the way there. And it was frustrating knowing what happened with Space Jam and so on and so forth. And we had um, you know, we had Disney, who was it? Disney, Warner, Fox, 
so on and so forth, wanting Paramount, wanting to turn it into a feature film. And to this day, I still don't understand why we didn't turn um, Replay into a feature film. We had Gregory Allen Howard who wrote Remember the Titans. And um, it's like, here, here it is, some planet, let's go. And we couldn't get there. So all types of forces and um, both on the, you know, not just client, definitely not just client, uh, on the shy end of things as well. And so I said, well, if now or never, if, otherwise I'm just going to be frustrated with not being able to do these types of things. So that, that was the motivation to start amusement park. Um, as you build and, and grew the company and spun it out into various divisions, did you, I mean, cause you've really grown it into a, a number of kind of different directions and divisions and offerings, um, ranging from traditional marketing all the way up to kind of the highest aspiration of branded content. How do you overcome just the, the feeling to not be overwhelmed as a business owner to not kind of you know, not be bogged down by that struggle of that fear of not knowing. Do you, do you, do you have to combat that or is that just not in your nature? Uh, I, that's not, uh, there's a host of things. Uh, Walt Disney, you know, I, I was the kid who literally believed, you know, you know, you know, if you believe it, you can do it. Right. You, and, and that was big in the black community at the time. You, you, if you believe you can achieve. And my parents encouraged that mom and dad, um, James and Evelyn, encourage that so that was, that was big time right. and seeing dad own a own various businesses including the arby's is like oh yeah so i was just used to that being the deal and then growing up um in that um environment the all-white neighborhood if you didn't believe you could do something they certainly weren't going to believe that you could do it <laughs> the, the white folks that were around there so and, and i did have some dope teachers now i want paying everybody that they were knuckleheads. They were not. But um, you definitely had to believe that you could do something. And you were always, always the odd man out in that environment in, in terms of, yep, I'm the black dude with the Afro and no, not another person. You know, there might be two or three other folks, but in general, you were the odd man out, right? So I was used to being in situations that were uncomfortable, uncomfortable situations became comfortable to me. If things weren't uncomfortable, it was a little weird. Like this, you know, it was like something's a little off here. And then the, and then the advertising giants that I, that I worked with and even non-advertising giants, you know, talking to Bootsy. Um, Bootsy was a mentor. Um, Lewis Williams always used to tell me, um, it's not rocket science, Jimmy. No, you know, not rocket science. They try and make it like it's rocket science, but it is not. And so I just gravitated towards those types of deals. And that was the background you got from the feeling you got from um, Dan Wyden. I remember he put up the money for my, com my graphic novel, The Truth. And he goes, uh, I was bitching and complaining because Nike had killed this campaign with Sister Slope, which was, so we created this comic book character for Peekaboo Street called Sister Slope. She was kind of like the silver surfer, only she was on skis and whatnot and snowboard. And um, they killed it. We, we had worked on it for nine months. It was a week before his, the animated series was going to release, the animated ad. And um, I'm in Dan's office just bitching and complaining. And he said, well, Jimmy, just, just make your own comic book. And you're going, yeah, Dan, I, I, I would if I had the money, dude. But, you know, it's like, he goes, we'll pay for it. 
just like that. So me and wow. Billy Davenport um, and created, um, you know, we went on and did the truth graphic now. So it was things like that, dealing with the Dan, dealing with the Lee Cloud, dealing with the uh, David Lubars. Even with my first gig, Tom Burrell, you know, was, I don't know how many agent, black agencies there were, but I could count them. <laughs> so it was like you're, you're constantly seeing folks and interacting with folks who were doing things that you weren't, you know, that you weren't supposed to be able to do. Met Michael on my, Michael Jordan on my first gig. So, you know, my, when I was at Burrell, he came to the office. And, so you just kept meeting and believing, meeting and believing, meeting and believing. And then, like I said, you know, near the beginning, you know, when you got God, I believe he said what he said. He means what he said. So if he said it, then nothing's impossible. We know, we know basketball players want to be rappers and rappers want to be basketball players. Uh, I like the platinum Shaq Diesel album more than the average person does, but, um, but we've never seen a basketball player with rhymes quite like Dame Lillard. Uh, tell me just a little bit about working with Dame to help him release his first single. That was, um, he was, um, you know, you get a lot, a lot of protection depending on who the athlete is. Um, they got a lot of folks hanging on. Oh, he's he's not going to want to do that. Oh, he's not going to da 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 da. Dame is just real, and, and 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 a bunch of them are just real. You know, KG is one of my all-time favorites. Scottie Pippen, all-time favorite. And I'm leaving folks out, but Peekaboo was all-time favorite. So there's a bunch of them that are dope. Um, but um, Derek Jeter, he's he's you can hang 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 with that dude. But um, Dane was just like, you know, it's like, man, I wonder, is he going to be cool with it? Because uh, Mike Brown had been killed, right, in um, Missouri. Yeah. And you're going in Ferguson, and you're going, we need to. And, and JBL's speakers, the, the tagline was listening. No, what was it? Hear the truth. That was their tagline. And we ended up changing it to listening color because they had this speaker that changed colors as the music played. So we, that, we thought that'd be great for the actual product, but obviously what's going on in the streets, we, got, we aren't listening. We keep saying this is going down, Charlie ain't listening. And, um, but is, is Dame gonna wanna get in like that? And he's got some dope um, agents and the good ones. And they used to be LeBron's agents and so on and so forth. And um, they said, yeah, yeah, he won't get on like that. And I said, okay. Because we had had, and I won't say who it is, but we had a, another athlete who didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, with a 1,000-foot pole. And um, so you're thinking, well, Dane might, might be the same, might be kind of whack like that. Right. And um, that dude was all in. And it, it wasn't a deep conversation with him either. He got it right off, the, you know, this is coming off of, he, he saw the concept and he said, okay, okay. Next thing we know, he he rapped the first few bars and they sent over a little, you know, a little thing over the over the phone. It's like, damn, that's it. And then when we did the full song, he he wrote the, you know, he was just that dude is he's just dope. He's real. He's 100, you know, that's all there is to it. And he's not gonna change. He is who he is, who he is. He he um sturdy in his beliefs, sturdy in um, what he's about and what he stands for. Uh, he's a dope cat. He needs to be a Laker. Uh, 
All right, man. We end every episode with the same three questions. I'm going to start lobbing them your way right now. The first one is, Jimmy, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? The advertising phrase or jargon that makes my skin crawl. You're on a conference call. You're on a client meeting. Just it's that thing that someone says and you're like, man, I just, I fucking hate when people say that term. You know, I'm sorry, dude. I can't, um, I can't, I can't, I can tell you what they are is when they use, you know, BCD and and the client acronyms, acronyms, acronyms. And and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that means. (laughs) And I don't care. I, I, I used to, back in the day, I used to, okay, what's that one mean? And I'd get, get it down. So I, you know, I was up to speed. I don't care. Just <laughs> We're doing the same thing now, the same rules that applied back in, um, in the 80s and the 90s and the, in the early 2000s apply now. is like you got a lot of competition for people's headspace. And you got to break through. That's that's the bottom line. You got to break through with your message, whatever it is, whatever platform you're you're doing. You have to break through. You can create every type of ac- acronym you want. It's still the same game. Yeah. There are people who there are people who create acro- use acronyms to exercise power and try to bring a level of intellectualism or complexity to a thing that, as you said, yeah. at the end of the day, it's like man. God forbid we just keep this problem very clear and simple. Come on, homie. I know you learned that at Harvard, but, you know, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> all right. Second question is, what's the most fucked up response you ever got from a client during a creative presentation of something that you presented? Mm, fucked up client. Fucked up comment. You know what? There was, um, so I told you what happened with um, Space Jam made four, close to $4 billion and still sold product to the point where the Space Jams are probably the most um, favorite shoot if, if you took a poll. Um, you know, the ones are probably obviously up there too, but still, famous. And I went through with the client with this, you know, explaining... <laughs> explaining the whole thing. I even had Joe Picker on tape. I had him on um, video explaining what went down. So I had went to the source of what went down and how it's successful. So I was pitching this branded entertainment idea. And the person and the client said at the end of all of that, oh, they were sitting up there, how stupid. Man, that's just stupid. Oh, man. How, can they, how could they not see that? I said, yeah, all right. So I'm thinking, man, we're really making headway because this person gets it. And (laughs) and so it never occurred to her that we were actually, I'm going to spend this to your product. I'm going to spend this. I'm going to start here, but it's going to end up on your product. The reason I'm telling you this whole story, this whole setup, and so, so I said, so we want to do a, a feature film on, on your, um, I'm going to say something else so that uh, it, I won't implicate anybody. Yeah. On your car. <laughs> no, on your candy bar. That, that's better. On your candy bar. And the person said, she goes, 
oh, I didn't know you were talking about for us. We're just a candy bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, was like, I was like, you admitted how stupid this was that that um, that Nike should have done this. And that's just crazy that they didn't do it. But you can, when it came to you personally for your product, right? Essentially, she was saying the same thing that Phil Knight was saying is we, we just make shoes. She was saying we just make candy bars. She was like, I thought we were just shooting the shit. Your, your presentation had begun already. Okay. <laughs> never, never saw it coming. And you know what? Look, this might be related, but the final question is called the one that got away. I like to ask people, you know, you've been in the game for a minute. What is that one beloved idea that you couldn't sell for whatever reason and it, it still haunts you? And maybe it's, it's replay the movie. Uh, yeah, that, that was one replay movie that should, that should have absolutely, um, gotten done. There's, there's been, obviously we all got those, you're in the game. We, we all got those, but I guess we did this thing called beauty liberation. It's a music video and, um, it's for a beauty brand and they actually paid the money, paid the money to make the music video. And it's not just me telling you it was like one of the most, one of the dopest things I had ever, ever done. It, 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 people, when we would play it in the, um, I'm trying to say this right, when we would play it in the, you know, post-production or whatever and whatnot, the women that were in there working on it and, you know, they would start crying when they would see it. That's how, how that music video affected them. And what it was about was um, making, um, helping, can't make anybody do anything, but you can help women feel comfortable in their own skin, whether they're plus size, skinny, tall, short, black, white, blue, purple, whatever the deal is, and not fitting the, um, the typical standards of Western ideals of, of beauty. Whatever it is that you are, you are beautiful and um, you need to be liberated. And that's what the whole song was about. So we had some of the women that sang in that song, one of them signed to Def Jam. They weren't signed yet, but that was the type of talent we had. One signed with Columbia, one signed with Def Jam. So it was banging. And, and um, they would not release it. And it was like, it's done. It's done, it's finished. Just put it out there and we aren't paying for media. Just put it on social media, release the doggone thing. And like I said, a, a multitude of women would just cry when they would see it. So we knew it was right. And we had a client who's um, underneath the boss who, and she did everything under the sun to try and um, get them to release that um, video. And they wouldn't, wouldn't do it. That one, that one got away. And it's out there somewhere. It's on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah, it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> you, should just post, you should just post it to Instagram today. Um, look, man, uh, when I first started at Crispin Porter, some of my bosses flew you out for an interview. And I remember my partner was like, yo, man, that's Jimmy Smith walking through the lobby. Like, you know, you, you love his work. You should go say what's up to him. Man, I loved your work so much that I was actually too nervous to even walk up and shake your hand and say what's up. So uh, in light of that, I just wanted to thank you for, for joining me today. It's a, it's a conversation that I will... Uh, I'll remember for a long time and cherish, and it's great to get to know you, man. 
right back at you, dude. And we still can't shake hands. <laughs> I know. That's true. One of these days. One of these days. All right, Jimmy. Thanks for the time, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much, Jimmy Smith. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, my dude, Jeff Fiorello. Thank you. A uh, special thank you to my friend, Sharina Florence, who actually hooked me up with Jimmy and and uh, and very nice of her to uh, create that introduction. And if you're liking the pod, as always, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace.